There's a war going on and the target is your wallet. Traditional banks, new digital first banks, and big tech are battling not just for new bank and credit card accounts, but also for every time we make a choice on how to pay. Hi, I'm Ken Cadet and this is the Entrust Cybersecurity Institute podcast. Today we have a special episode where we're diving into the war for the wallet going on in the banking and payments world. This pace of change here is accelerating to faster, more digital first, more instantaneous service. Consumers demand convenience, in-person or online. There are positives in this rapid change and, and here's the cybersecurity angle, there are also risks in these changes around fraud, identity, privacy, and wallets as well. So to talk about this, we have two special guests with deep insight into the world of banking and payments. Bobby Mehta is former CEO and vice chair of HSBC North America, one of the world's largest banking and financial services organizations, and former CEO of TransUnion. Bobby sits on several boards in banking services and technology, including that of Entrust. So thank you for being here, Bobby. Thank you, Ken, and good morning. And Jana Schroeder is a business leader with deep operational expertise in banking and financial services from her 38-plus years at Northern Trust Corporation, where she was COO until 2018 and previously was president of wealth management and corporate risk management. And she is also on the Entrust board. So welcome, Jana. Thank you, Ken. And hello to everyone out there listening. So let's talk about the word for the wallet. Um, first, Bobby, let's start with you. Can you provide us an overview of what's happening in banking today and how the landscape is changing in terms of consumers, competition, and threats that are out there in this world? One of the benefits of being old, and I guess I can say that since <laughs> I just turned, since I just turned 65. Careful, Bobby, I'm right there with you. <laughs> that one has the benefit of perspective. And, uh, and I think, Ken, you're absolutely right. You know, there is a war for the wallet fueled by technology, by the ubiquity of data and analytic techniques, uh, the advent of new business models that are being created and have been created by, uh, by many fintech players. But sometimes I think we can get lost in the here and now, in the hurly-burly of that competition, the change, and the transformation that we are seeing. Uh, and so I just thought as a way of introducing the topic, uh, it might be worth just going back to the 1990s and uh, telling the story of the credit card. Many of you will remember in 19, the, the decade of the 1990s was the decade of the credit card monolines. The credit card monolines in some ways had many of the same characteristics of uh, disruptive fintechs. You know, they discovered a new method of, of, of acquiring customers that was called direct mail. It may seem old hat today, but it was very, very new at that time. They were using data and analytics. In fact, credit card companies were probably doing big data before it was called big data. Uh, and they were do, doing data and analytics for segmentation, for risk and marketing purposes, and therefore were able uh, to use credit bureaus and other kind of data infrastructure and couple that with direct mail to find new ways of acquiring customers or managing the risk of those customers in a way that banks were not doing. As a result, the credit card model lines grew very rapidly to take about 60 to 70% market share in the credit card space and massively increased the size of the market. However, 
as we then entered an economic slowdown, because they were all um, they were all dependent on wholesale funding sources. Uh, they were ultimately first USA and NBNA, for example, were acquired by banks. Capital One, which obviously is a very powerful brand name today in the credit card space, became a bank. And so the methods, the techniques, the changes that the credit card monolines created for the credit card industry have remained. But then now, within the purview or within the context of large regulated financial institutions were big deposit bases and stable sources of funding. So I think there's some lessons in here uh, with, with respect to the transformation that I think was really kicked off with the rapid growth of the fintech sector probably 12, 13, 14 years ago. And so fintech as a sector is relatively new. It seems like it's been going on forever, but it's relatively new. Uh, but these fintechs are all are in, in payments, be it in payments, be it in lending, uh, you know, be it in different ways of grow, going to market, like companies like Credit Karma. They've all changed and are changing the financial services landscape. Um, having said that, they're also instigating the banking sector, the traditional incumbent banking sector, to undergo major changes today. That change is is apparent in the rapid digital transformation that banks and many of you listening to the podcast like are going through. The move to the cloud, uh, the move to get to be mobile first. Uh, many of those changes were uh, were catalyzed also by the pandemic that you've just been through. And, and as a result of all of that, I think you, what you're seeing is a convergence, a reconvergence between the banking sector and the fintech sector. Brought about, brought about by, again, the difficulty uh, and this relative scarcity of funding. So we had a decade of zero interest rates, highly liquid markets, and the ability to get funding, be it equity or debt funding, very cheap. That is now changing. So I think there are a lot of parallels, Ken, between how the credit card monolines grew, permanently changed the way in which the credit card industry was operating, uh, but then reconverged with the banking sector. I'm not saying that that'll happen again, but you're beginning you're seeing some signs of that today, where you had a decade of rapid innovation. Uh, uh, by the fintechs in an era of very low cost and plentiful funding. And now you're seeing, I think, some elements of that infrastructure and change and methods of doing business reconverging. That also has some, I think, very important implications, uh, or some of these changes rather have very important implications for aspects of fraud, identity verification, uh, and I know we'll talk about those later, but the the move to mobile first, the move to frictionless customer experience puts an even higher premium on data and analytics and knowing your customer. Yeah, and it seems like it's it's the fintechs as well as 
the fintechs as well as kind of the big tech companies like Apple and Samsung and Google and that sort of thing getting into the payments industry. Um, what are some of the ways that that's shaking things up? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we, we haven't really mentioned um, the, the big tech companies, which are uh, you know, jumping in, uh, certainly to the, the payments world. Um, but even tiptoeing into the broader financial services world with partnerships, um, with with big banks, if you will, for credit cards, for lending, um, even checking and savings accounts. So there's a bigger player with a lot of money, and um, those players also have... I think a brand recognition worldwide that um, certainly surpasses many, many banks or um, fintech players. Um, they also, I think, have going for them uh, the fact that they are um, ready, willing with cutting edge technology to make rapid innovation that's, that's hard to keep up with. Um, so it's, it's interesting to me that um, Bobby's analogy is, is a really good one. And I think the history lesson is important. And maybe to answer your question and then to pick up on Bobby's points, you know, I would just add that we also can't lose sight of the customer experience um, or surprised by the competitive partnerships that emerge. And I think we're already seeing those as a result of the, the big tech players coming into the payments. Tell me a little more about that. What are some of the competitive partnerships that we're seeing? How is that? How is that affecting the customer experience? Well, I think you're seeing uh, Google and City. Right? Google's offering checking accounts through City. Uh, you're you're looking at Apple and Golden, although there's been some interesting aspects of that in the news um, lately. Uh, but I think part of that is looking at the relationships that big banks historically have been able to build, and small banks, for that matter, locally and regionally, um, that have really stood the test of time. And I think the more you offer, the more comprehensive your services, the more logical it is that those relationships are pretty sticky. And I think Big Tech understands that. I think if I could just build on Jana's point, um, just to add, obviously, uh, you know, we know of the partnership uh, between uh, Amazon and JP Morgan on cards and current accounts. Uh, no. And I think Big Tech is in a very interesting place with respect to their posture vis-a-vis uh, -vis financial services. Uh, because on the one hand, let's not forget that the banking sector is probably one of the biggest clients uh, of Big Tech, uh, both from an advertising perspective on the one hand uh, and uh, you know, with respect to their utilization of the cloud services of both Amazon, Microsoft, et cetera. So, so there is this... Uh, Cooperation component. They're both clients, potential partners, and possible competitors. Um, and one overlay that we should uh, we should ignore and make and, and perhaps make explicit is the regulators of uh, entering into regulated financial services. And, you know, most bankers say regulation is tax or cost. Regulation is also a competitive barrier to it. Uh, and so, so I think, I think we will see this constant tension again between big tech saying, we have the customer, we have the customer relationship. We know a lot about the customer. We have instrumented amazing, you know, customer experience and UX and data analytics to offer them next best product. 
but how far into the provision of financial services do we want to go because they're both capital intensive and regulatorily intensive. And so I think we're going to see partnership test the boundaries of how far one sector wants to go into the other sector uh, for all the reasons I just described. You know, Bobby, you bring up the regulatory point, and I think that's a really critical one that, you know, before our eyes is part of the change. It's constantly changing, expanding, broadening, deepening. Um, and as you said, it can be considered a tax. It can be considered a um, barrier to entry. Uh, but I think the intention there is protection. And I think one thing we can't lose sight of, um, or none of the players can lose sight of for long, um, is that protection against fraud, identity theft, what have you, is a big part of the consumer expectation of the, the customer experience. It's not just about convenience, speed, fancy tech. Um, it's, it's protect me. Uh, as a, as a bio component. Well, it does feel like as we think about uh, real-time payments, as we think about, you know, things moving faster and faster, we kind of lose that critical trust check that happened, say, in the branch when you're sitting in front of a banker opening up an account. You know, when you look at thinking about, when you start to think about, you know, onboarding a customer in a digital first process, um, you know, how does that change? How does How do you think about, how does a bank think about uh, you know, building building trust, building identity and verification into the process. You know, maybe I'll start with that, um, having a, grown up in banks. But uh, as you point out, know your customer has always been the the baseline of, of any big bank or any small bank for that matter. Uh, and knowing your customer depended a lot on interacting, meeting, learning about, uh, talking with it, seeing um, spending time with the customer, that's evolved over time, not only with the advent of the, the digital world, um, but with size and time commitments, et cetera, um, more and more became reliant on process. Um, and now some of those regulatory um, compliance requirements. Um, so a lot of information um, now changes hands and is stored and is relied on and built into um, the digital components of, of banking. Um, but I'd say, you know, in, in addition to that, um, COVID probably brought about a whole new definition of what it means to personally interact. So it's perfectly okay to never actually physically meet your customer as long as you looked in the eyes, you, you've seen them digitally. Um, that is now accepted. Um, so I think even the personalized part of that in-branched, in-person in relationship is shifted. Um, and that's a, a change for the big banks and the smaller banks. Um, it's something that makes it a little more easy for the, um, the fintechs who don't have branches, uh, the, the neobanks, the, the digital only banks, um, because now they're learning how to build that relationship virtually. Um, and I think that's, that's um, going to continue to shift and change. And I think there's going to be a broad spectrum that's required in terms of how you truly know your customer and protect your customer. Adding to what Janet just said, I think this has been one of the areas, in my opinion, where fintechs have played a, an enormous role. Uh, now, they've fundamentally shown the way of how uh, you can have a digital-first experience, be it a neobank, be it an online lender, and then their you know, infrastructure 
uh, fintechs in the fraud ID verification space who have created, I think, amazing, uh, amazing new services uh, to enable uh, enable remote uh, authentication, verification, etc. Um, and that has sort of been amplified by the cut the consumer expectation of convenience and speed, as Jana mentioned. Another amplification I think worth worth touching on here is that you know fraud committing fraud is now a multi-billion dollar industry. <laughs> and, and it's an ever it's an ever adapting uh, form of attack. Yeah, like college that. students take note, right? But <laughs> <laughs> much like cyber attack. So fraud and cyber, you know, are both multi-billion dollar industries and then have created sort of multi-billion dollar industries to protect the consumer uh, and to protect the institutions from it. And the challenge that you know, I think the fintechs have shown us is how you can uh, break this compromise between friction and, and safety. Uh, it's, not, it's not absolute, uh, but with new techniques, uh, new ways of identifying and verifying people, be it uh, you know, be it their voice, be it their retinal scan or biometric measures. You know, we are all, all obviously used to the fingerprint and the face uh, on our uh, on our devices today, etc., uh, etc. Et that the boundary of what you can do without necessarily interrupting a customer consumer experience has really shifted. Uh, and so, so I think, uh, I think this technological uh, uh, leap forward has really both enhanced the customer experience as well as improved safety and, and security. I understand that the new standard is to get a customer onboarded in like sixty seconds or less, um, which sounds amazing. Is that you know what 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 do you see, Jana? What do you see as the pros and cons of that? You know, Jen, your fast, I think, is the essence of convenience. As long as it doesn't lead to inaccuracy or fraud, identity theft, privacy, or any other what you might call inconvenient risks um, that Bobby just um, very astutely mentioned. But but I also think fast um, is something that we all kind of grown accustomed to. So whether it's 60 seconds or 30 seconds or five minutes, um, it's all relative. And I think it will consistently expand as long as that friction um, that Bobby mentioned is dissipated when it comes to providing that safety that is unequivocally expected. Um, they, they, customers, I think, expect all the validations, protections, reliability that historically required longer timeframes for getting a customer from opening to transaction. But as Bobby so beautifully described, Fast and secure are no longer mutually exclusive concepts. Um, it's just you have to operationalize that in a very sustainable way, which will enable that speed to continue to be close to instantaneous. 60 seconds may seem too long before too long. And just just building again on Jala's point, it seems to me that you have to do now a lot of the authentication without having to ask the customer a question. And so a lot of it is contextual, a lot of it is uh, you know, location-based, a lot of it is um, 
perhaps certificate-based using some of the techniques that uh, we use here at Entrust. Uh, it's it's really triangulating or triaging multiple signals. You know, is your is your device a good device or blacklisted device? You know, you know there are now even techniques which uh, look at how you use the keyboard. Uh, I'm told that you know, the way one uses the keyboard is as distinctive as a fingerprint. So you so there are all of these behind the scenes uh, techniques and signals. Uh, that are being leveraged, and and so what that says to me is that as the the fraudsters get more innovative, you know, techniques of today may become less effective over time, and new techniques may, will evolve. And so, in addition to having sustainable processes, as as Jana mentioned, I think we should anticipate a set of processes that have to always adapt. To new threats and, and new countermeasures that have been created. Yeah, just one point on that adaptability that I find really interesting, and that is the customer is adapting faster and faster to accepting those new technologies, new, new ways, because they do start to understand its protection in a convenient way. I also believe that in addition to that, as ID and cyber threats have been imprinted on the consumer's mind, you know, for certain uh, what they might perceive to be high, higher risk transactions. So, you know, maybe moving moving large quantities of money, etc. You know, additional steps from an authentication perspective, I think, are both appropriate and will be accepted by the customer. So, this idea of adaptive authentication, I think, is an important one. And so one needs to look at, if it's a low-risk transaction, do you need the same level of authentication as a high-risk transaction? And how do you match that up in your internal processes and, and the way you deploy technology and data to accomplish that? Right. And so we're recording this in July 2023, and we were just talking before we started a little bit about FedNow and the real-time payments that that's going to enable, it seems like the things you're talking about are going to be really critical in that kind of world and probably expected by consumers who want to make sure, hey, if this payment's going through right now, um, you know, it's going to be very much verified, secured, et cetera. Yes, and, and I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, in, in this country, obviously, as you know, uh, Ken, uh, we have multiple payment rails, right? We have the card rails, we then have rails, you know, that are in, you know, like uh, like PayPal, etc. Uh, and then we have the bank payment rails, uh, you know, which are ACH and and um, uh, and SWIFT and so on. The card credit card rails were developed with the concept of real time payments. The bank payment rails were always developed from a batch perspective. And so with the creation of FedNow, which I think is a great step forward, but the U.S. is behind Europe and probably the rest of the world in real-time bank-to-bank payments. So the Fed is catching up, which is a good thing. But it has real implications for the internal systems within a bank. Because if the internal payment processes are batched, and the bank-to-bank payment systems are real-time, it creates an element of risk that 
all the bank professionals on this call are acutely aware of, and you know, a lot of work is going on to figure out how. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to at least touch on one other area where uh, you know I think a lot of a lot a lot of work is happening behind the scenes, and um, I was noticing that uh, on on your old company's website on HSBC.com, they actually are featuring. Um, a statement about the preparations they're making about for the post-quantum computing era, uh, when quantum computers are able to, um, sometime in the next several years or so, um, able to break traditional encryption. Um, you know, Bobby, you want to talk about that for a little bit about what that's, uh, you know, where where things are headed there, and and uh, what banks should be thinking about. Certainly. Uh, so first of all, uh, it's. It's really interesting for me to observe or to see that you know we are talking about quantum computing in a manner that suggests that it's more imminent than not. And and you know five years ago, uh, people thought quantum computing wasn't going to really achieve uh, you know any sort of practical viability for a long time, but the advancement in quantum make it much more imminent. And as you say, uh, you know, it brings risks and opportunity. Right? Uh, so quantum computing can do certain things that are uh, significantly better than what you can do using classical computing. One of the risks that creates is that the ability of quantum computers to break uh, RSA encryption. And the entire payment system is built on uh, RSA encryption, uh, and so, and so, when you look at the existential risk, payment system in a post-quantum world, uh, there's a lot of work going on around how to prepare the organizations, payment systems, uh, from and, and and managing the systemic risk of those uh, from uh, from quantum-based attacks. Uh, and so there's a lot of work going on. There are quantum, post-quantum-ready algorithms that have been developed and designed by NIST. Either Entrust plays a big role uh, in in the NIST and industry aura in, in, in this respect. And, and organizations need to uh, be prepared, uh, at least know where the RSA encryption algorithms are, how many there are, what they're using, and prepare for a post-quantum world because it's not that far away. So there's a lot, we, we talked a lot about the competition going on between traditional banks, newer banks, big tech, fintech, uh, and a lot of the um, the cooperation and the partnerships that are developing across these. Um, what do you think the different players in the banking and payments arena can learn from each other? You know, maybe I'll jump in here and start the summary. Um, but but I'd say, you know, you're right to bring this up because they each have something I think each of the others need. Um, the big banks know their customers uh, through strong compliance for decades of building trusted relationships. They're also pretty firmly entrenched in a longstanding, reliable payments ecosystem. But they're far from digital first or maybe fast enough. Um, the newer digital first Financial institutions are faster. They're more flexible from a fee perspective. Uh, they're also focused on a younger consumer demographic that's about to hit their peak spending, and I'd say financial planning years, uh, which is a huge 
opportunity. Um, if, is a big if, um, they can actually produce the products, services, and expertise um, to sustainably satisfy the rapidly expanding demand for a, a full, what I'll call, omni-channel financial relationship um, that the big banks do have. Um, big tech, as we talked about before, offers convenient, innovative solutions based on amazing customer experience design. Um, they can disintermediate some of that long-standing ecosystem, but at the same time depend on parts of it and are starting to build those necessary ecosystem connections. Um, and they're learning, I'd say, something that the, the banks and the syntechs understand, and that is service as well as data privacy and protection are a huge part of that customer experience that uh, results in trusted brands and relationships, something that they're going to have to expand. So I would say that I think we need to, we should think about um, fintechs, you know, in two broad categories, whether they're B2C, I, they're consumer facing versus if there are B2B, in which case, you know, they're trying, they're providing infrastructure and data and analytics and other services to the banking and financial services. In the latter case, obviously, the banks and financial institutions are their clients, and and their and their objective obviously is to enable the banks and financial institutions to become more nimble, more agile, uh, you know, more digital first, uh, accelerate their speed and so on. Uh, and there's a whole plethora of companies and, 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 and very successful companies in that sphere for whom the financial institutions are customers. On the B2C side, as Jana says, um, you know, I think there, there's also, I think, an increasing interest in, in figuring out how to partner to both compete on the one hand, but also to partner with banks. Uh, part of that is pragmatic, because in a B2C space, the, the, one of the biggest hurdles that fintechs face is the cost of acquiring a customer. And and that cost in is, is not going down, it's increasing. Uh, and then once you have a customer, many of the fintechs tend to be have relatively narrow and so how do you maximize the lifetime value of the customer? How do you increase customer engagement? Those are all avenues by which, um, or, or avenues through which uh, they're considering how to partner with the incumbent financial institutions. Um, and then the third driver of all of that is purely pragmatic because today, the you know, in, in 2023, the funding for fintechs is down 50% from what it was in 2020 and 2021. And so a lot of consumer facing fintechs who built some really good tech, but can't, don't have, can't find the funding to grow their consumer or customer base are increasingly looking to say, well, maybe we become part of a larger financial institution who can use our tech, who can leverage our tech because they have the customers. Again, a point that Jana made uh, really well. And then I think big tech is sort of, uh, we talked about it earlier, I think there's got to be this yin and the yang, push and the pull between how far into regulated, highly capital intensive uh, products and services they want to be 
versus taking the role of enabling their financial institution clients to become more nimble. And maybe they'll do some of both. Uh, but I think that's a, that's a story yet to be written. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's wrap up with this question. Where where do you see the war for the wallet headed, and what advice do you have for banks as things as things continue evolve, to evolve? Jana, let's start with you. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think we we've done a pretty good job of uh, focusing on kind of where things are headed. So I'll try not to be repetitive there. Um, but I'd say um, from a standpoint, you know, it, it, in addition to, you know, regulatory compliance and zero trust, cybersecurity, vigilance and quantum readiness that we talked about from a tech perspective, I would really um, advise all the players to really focus on consumer convergence, um, those expectations that we talked about. Um, consumer, consumer first really should generate the best holistic combination of convenience, compliance, cybersecurity as well as the product, service, or channel choice and cost. Um, but on the flip side, I'd say also, as we've talked about, let's focus on the financial ecosystem, as Bobby coined, cooperation, um, because with the competitive ecosystem, you know, connectivity and um, cooperation, I think just might yield the best win for customers and companies in the long run. So Ken, I would just add to that by saying, uh, that the war for the wallet, I think, has always been intense. And, you know, again, with the benefit of history, the intensity always seems highest in the moment. But when you look back in time, uh, intensity and the war for the wallet has always been a, a fierce battle that financial institutions have fought. Uh, I think the new tools in the arsenal for banks uh, to use uh, and there's new new threats, if you like, uh, from fintechs and non-financial institutions, etc. And so my advice to banks is actually a very boring one, which is execute. Have a plan and execute. Uh, because too often I've seen additional transformation plans get derailed because... They're too big, too ambitious. Uh, they don't deliver value in incremental chunks. Uh, and, and, and as a result, people lose patience. People move on to the next shiny object. Keeping the objective of consumer convergence, as Jana said, uh, meeting and exceeding customer expectations in mind and building a plan, uh, it's, it sounds really dull and boring. But... I think, in my mind, that's the recipe for success. That totally makes sense, and dull and boring definitely makes things happen. <laughs> so, um, thank you both. Thank you both for being here. This has been a genuine pleasure talking with you both about uh, in this area. And I want to thank you all for listening. If you like what you hear, I encourage you to rate and review this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And we would love to hear from you. You can email your opinions and ideas to Cybersecurity Institute at entrust.com. So till next time, thank you. <laughs>